Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. I am Patty James, chair of tonight's program. Dr. William Grant, Bill, raise your hand. And, and I were formerly co-chairs of the Health and, Mem- uh, Health and Medicine member-led forum for many years. And now, after COVID, we are now um, chairs of this brand new forum, Nutrition, Food, and Wellness. And this is our maiden voyage. So we're starting off with the bang with these wonderful people who've all agreed to come with us and join us tonight. So Jeffrey Davis is a chef based in Oakland, California, who is opening Burdell, a buzzy pop-up series. Well, now you have a restaurant opening late uh, April, is gearing up to, o- uh, to open in Oakland. Naming, named after his grandmother, Burdell is a soul food restaurant where Chef Davis highlights seasonal produce on a nostalgic and ever-changing prefix menu. His passion for food began as a child at his grandparents' and parents' table, where he inherited their love for cooking and produce. He later attended the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, and after graduating, worked in Michelin star restaurants such as the Fifth Floor, and Cyrus. Jeff's then served as chef de cuisine at the Dock in West Oakland. Soon afterwards, he spent six months traveling in Europe, dining and exploring the wine regions of France and Italy before coming back to the Bay Area. Notably, he was executive chef at True Laurel in San Francisco, a cocktail-focused spin-off of the two-star Michelin restaurant Lazy Bear, and part of the team that opened the restaurant. His forward-looking approach to bar food, along with unique cocktails, received accolades, including three stars and top 300 designations from the San Francisco Chronicle. A Michelin plate each year, the restaurant was eligible, and Eater and Esquire honored it on their list of best new restaurants in America. <laughs> From um, Cochina del Corazon, we welcome Hasmin and Enrique Soriano. They state that, and this is a quote, as first-generation Chicanos, our family's traditional Mexican restaurants are held close to our hearts and our kitchen. We use these recipes to craft each of our authentic menus. Classically trained, Chef Enrique comes from a family of long-standing cooks and has learned the regional cuisine of Michoacan, Almost. (laughs) (laughs) From the many summers spent with his grandmother and uncles at their finca, their estate. They say, we're proud to be first-generation Oaklanders and to operate our small business in our beloved Fruitvale. We support local businesses and strongly believe that it's our duty to give back to our community. By working with local nonprofits, grassroots organizations, and schools, our hearts are fulfilled. Next, we have Vincent Medina and uh, Louis Trevino from Cafe Olone Macaman, which means our food. I like that. In East, um, Vincent Medina is East Bay Olone and is the captain of Eat My Cultural Association, an association of Verona Band Culture Bearers. Vincent was born and lives in his family's indigenous tribal area of Halkin, Southern Oakland, San Leandro, San Lorenzo, and Hayward. Vincent and Louis Trevino from the Rumson Olone co founded Makamham and 
organization and restaurant focused on reviving and strengthening traditional Ohlone foods and sharing them back with their communities. Louis Trevino is a leader in the Rumson Ohlone community. He is focused primarily on the revitalization of the Rumson language and traditional Ohlone foods. He longs for a full and holistic renaissance of the life ways of his ancestors, including language, story, song, art, food, and every other aspect of traditional Rumson Ohlone culture, and is grateful to contribute to the effort. With his partner, Vincent, Lewis co-founded Makamham, which works to promote traditional Ohlone foods within their families, as well as to educate the public about Ohlone cuisine and identity. So welcome to all of you. Thanks for being here. Vincent, why don't you and, and Lewis start and, and spend 10 minutes telling us your story. Hello to you all in Chochenyo, the East Bay language of our family. Vincent Medina, at Louis Trevino. My name is Vincent Medina, here with my partner, Louis Trevino. We are both Ohlone people. We celebrate our beautiful Ohlone culture and we want to acknowledge our elders who make these conditions possible for us to see such continuity, be able to see the culture, be able to con be continued on every day, see the culture grow because of their leadership, their love, as well as all that love of our ancestors, all those before us. We want to acknowledge where we come from. We come from beautiful Halkin which is just east of here, the eastern shores of San Francisco Bay. It's an area that our family has always lived in, every generation of our family. We believe from those days of our creation on the peaks of Tuushtak, Mount Diablo, to where we're at today in 2023, surely we will be in our home in the future as well. It's an area, beautiful area, along San Leandro, San Lorenzo Creeks, about 20 miles east of here, on the other side of the bay. It's an area that our family has always lived in, every generation. There's never been a generation of our family that's ever been away from that area. It's a testament to the love, the sacrifices, the determination, the continuity, the persistence of all those generations before us that have always kept us in our land and kept our culture strong. It's made possible by our heroes, our ancestors, our elders, the ones that we respect and always want to follow in their footsteps. Lewis and myself were the co-founders of a cultural institution named Makamham, which in Chochenyo language means our food. And it's an institution that we founded in September of 2017 because we wanted to be able to see so much of the culture made accessible with our elders' leadership to everybody within our beautiful Ohlone community that we're, that we're connected with. To be able to see language grow stronger land stewardship practices, be able to be widespread in our community, be able to see traditional Ohlone foods be more accessible, to be able to see all those old traditions that our elders love so much, be able to be carried on into the future, again, with their leadership. They make it possible for us. So we created the cultural institution in order to be able to create uh, regular programming in the form of weekly language classes, gathering trips, formal meals for our elders. We come together on a regular basis over beautiful Ohlone cuisine, as well as being able to have cooking classes for our community. 
and to be able to navigate a very complex system in our homeland where we can uh, have gathering rights and to be able to see land stewardship practices be renewed that have long been banned by the state of California. Also finding ways to see, again, within park districts that occupy so much of our beautiful homeland east of here, be able to have uh, legal rights where we can gather, even though for such a long time those gathering rights were unfairly criminalized by the state and by counties. This work led to Cafe Ohlone being established in September of 2018. Cafe Ohlone is literally the only Ohlone restaurant in the entire world. And it's a place where our primary goal is to provide representation for our community. When Ohlone people come into the space, to be able to see ourselves seen, see our language reflected, be able to eat our traditional foods in the way that we eat them at home, be able to have those delicious foods like acorn soup, venison backstrap, chanterelle mushrooms, local mussels and clams, Olympia oysters, rosehip tea, elderberry and elderflower, be able to have those foods that are such luxury foods, be able to be eaten in the way that our elders prepare them for us, the ways that we've had them growing up, which again is such like a, something we're so fortunate because the culture has always found a way to continue. Many times when we were children, the public thought that us Ohlone's were, were extinct. That was a misconception that was so unfair. The fact is that our family has always lived lives full of meaning, dignity, sophistication, and wealth. Look to the landscape of the Bay Area, and it's easy to see how the wealth of the landscape translates to cultural wealth. That wealth also has been stewarded by the hands of our ancestors for countless thousands of years since the very start. Again, we believe that in our creation, that every bit of our culture, including us as people, is indigenous to the East Bay, originates from the East Bay. And the East Bay has shaped every bit of who we are, from our language, to our foods, to our aesthetics, to our values, to the way that we see the world, to our religion. To know that we've always been in a place also means as well that our people have long tended to that place. Tended to the place through a series of managed burns, taking out the overgrowth that today is leading to these wildfires that we're seeing across California that are increasingly more catastrophic each year. Those controlled burns, what they do is they enrich the soil with nutrients. They clear out that overgrowth. They allow interconnected plant communities to grow stronger. They open up meadow space for other life to thrive. They also remember interconnections of how all life is connected, whether it be plant life, whether it be animal life, human life, to microscopic life that we always can't see with our own eyes, to life that goes beyond that. We know that the system here in California works, this traditional system here in the Bay Area of tending to the land with respect and with dignity. It works so well that in our language, Chochenyo, we have no word for famine because there's always enough. Wow. We do have a word, yowini, which means to have more than enough food. This land, our land east of here, is always provided for our people. And growing up, again, the public, though, didn't really understand those things in the way that we're taught about them at home. So we wanted to be able to create Cafe Ohlone with a secondary goal. Again, the primary goal is representation for our Ohlone people. The secondary goal is to teach the public, using our own voices, that our culture is alive, that us Ohlone's are alive, that we've always been in our home east of here, in the East Bay, and we always will be. 
that our culture is valuable and our culture is beautiful. And that because everything that we do is place specific, that our culture right there, we have answers that are there to very complex questions and very complex issues that collectively people are experiencing in these times that we're in today, 2023. When we listen to our elders, we're able to make sure that their stories are uplifted, that the truth is uplifted of colonization, to make sure that people know that we've survived the missions. Our ancestors survived Mission San Jose, east of here, and Mission Dolores, where every aspect of our culture was attempted to be destroyed by the Spanish, but our elders found, a, our ancestors found a way to keep the culture moving forward. Our people survived the genocide that occurred with the, when the American government came in, the very first American governor of California saying that it's inevitable, but there has to be a war of extinction against the Indian race until the race becomes extinct. When bounties were literally placed on the heads of our ancestors. Our family, though, found ways to transcend those hardships. But we have to admit that those things happened and that those hardships happened as well. That makes as well our survival and continuity. What that does is is it makes us think about the strength that comes from our people, about the love for the culture that allows us to be in our home east of here, the love for the old ways that we want to make sure we're following in the footsteps of those generations before us to make sure that their sacrifices, the things that they fought for, the things that they kept going successfully, that those things always live forever, that those things will live and continue to be passed down to the next generation in our community. This work is centered on justice for our community, centered on continuity, centered on making sure that our elders are being respected and that their work is being respected so that we can be able to see, again, continuity happen all around us. Before I wrap up with this, I want to say that when I was a child, I remember looking to my great-grandma's generation. She was born in 1910 over on the old Sonora Rancheria. She was a speaker of our language, she gathered our foods. She loved our culture so much. Mary Archuleta, that's her name. And I think about how much love that she had. And I think about that generation when I was a kid that went through a lot of hardships, loss of federal recognition when UC Berkeley declare us extinct, about how those, our family back then survived things that were just so unfair, like of people trying to take like what belongs to us from outside of our community, taking those things and at the same try time trying to actively, the public trying to actively suppress the culture during that time. But I think about how my great grandma and that generation when I was young, how I learned from, from them. And as a child, I used to just like kind of sit back and like look at them. They always kept their heads up real high. They never, um, they never said too much, but whenever they said something, everybody listened. They were always so proud and like they had so much dignity. Like they were just so cool. Everything about them, the way that they dress, the way that they carry themselves, the love that they have for the culture. And I remember thinking when I was a young person that those are the kinds of people, you know, that I want to be like. And when I was a child, I always associated those people with things like strength and triumphs and victories. And that's how our culture ought to be represented and how, how it ought to be seen by everybody not from a place of loss and defeat, but a place of strength, triumphs, and victories. Because the culture is alive. We've never left our home. The old ways are alive as ever. They're only growing. Chochenyo language grows every single year in numbers, not declining. The traditional foods are still eaten. The old-time religion is still practiced. 
in spite of all those things that our family went through, with the missions, with the genocide, with the loss of federal recognition, even though we don't have a land base together collectively, we still able, are able to, to be in our home, keeping those old ways alive. That's not loss at all, and that's not defeat. But those are triumphs and victories made possible by our heroes, our elders, our ancestors, all those that come before us. We want people to know our culture is beautiful. Our people are strong. We've been east of here, the East Bay, all along. Today, like yesterday, just like tomorrow also. We're proud to do this work, Lewis and myself. It's an act of love for our culture. Cafe Ohlone is an act of love for the culture. It's an act of love for all those old ways, wanting to make sure that they grow with our elders' leadership and our ancestors there guiding us along the way. Yes. Wow, how do we top that? <clears throat> right? That was amazing. Um, do you want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. You know. All right. Well, first off, thank you all for being here. Um, there's so much gratitude in our hearts for being here and for sharing space with you all. Um, we are Cocina del Corazón. We are a food justice enterprise dedicated to serving the East Oakland community. Um, the East Oakland community um, through our prepared healthy meals that are culturally relevant and our hands-on cooking and culinary classes. Um, we started before the pandemic as a sustainable catering company. So we, at the beginning of our business, we wanted to set a standard for food and for operating a catering company. We early on understood that catering can be a very uh, wasteful industry. And we, from the beginning, wanted to be um, not wasteful. We wanted to operate sustainably and on a, in a green manner. And we were able to successfully feed um, a lot of corporate parties and celebrations and weddings. And um, the and even with those events, our main focus was to provide sliding scale catering. So we were able to do both really fancy, awesome parties in the Oakland Hills. And then we would take proceeds from these events to do sliding scale communities. So anytime it was a school, it was a church, it was a nonprofit, we would um, make it happen. So it would be a shoestring budget. And we knew it do the budget doesn't matter if it's for the community, the community will eat. And we were able to use beautiful organic produce from Mandela Partners. We were able to source everything hyper local. And we felt great being able to provide um, beautiful, authentic Mexican cuisine. And we really elevated the cuisine and um, provided upscale services. And when the pandemic happened, as with many of our lives, it completely, the domino effect went and just did its thing, right? And we found ourselves um, 
quickly learning that a catering company that does large events and celebrations during a pandemic was not going to be a business for too long. And although it seemed at that moment like a tragedy, right, like we can no longer operate our business, um, we really took it as a huge gift for our business because we were able to take that moment and say, how can we realign our work and how do we now center it around the mission to feed our community during the time of collective hardship, right? Like the pandemic brought so much extra hardship to our own neighbors in East Oakland and it didn't take but driving down the street to see the effects that it was having and the effects that it, the negative effects it had when it came to food and food accessibility in the East Oakland community. So we really took that as an anchor to say, okay, we have the gift of food and sourcing organic delicious meals. How do we use that in a way that will make a greater impact within our community and use food as medicine as a way that our community can get through this very, you know, tough time, which was the pandemic. So um, we really made an effort to rethink the way we did business and continue to do what we love the most, which was our community meals. And we we're very lucky to work in partnership with Mandela Partners, who are an amazing organization in Oakland. And we were able to do exactly what we love, which is create beautiful meals, feed the community, and do it in a way that actually uplifted the East Oakland community that we reside in. And we were able to do um, beautiful, culturally relevant, healthy, organic meals that were dignified for our community. And um, we were able to do that with the support of the Unity Council, Mandela Partners, our um, partners in Food Chef, you know, being able to take surplus goods of food and turn it into delicious, nutritious meals. So that was how we started. But I know Enrique, who, full disclosure, I am not the chef. <laughs> I only make things look pretty. Um, Enrique is the chef, and he really is the driving force behind all of the delicious meals that um, we create. Thank you. Thank you. You do much more than make things look pretty, for sure. Um, she's a lot of the brain works behind the making the proper connections and meeting the proper people and and do a lot of hard work. And, um, yeah, um, she mentioned that we did start off as a catering company, and with the pandemic, we had to pivot to uh, making community meals. Um, and with that, I found uh, that I was at my best when it came to cooking. I was able to express myself and to feed folks who I felt really deserved and needed the food um, really get the food because uh, I came from uh, from working in high-end type restaurants and um, you notice that a lot of the folks who come and eat these organic food and people who just need it the most don't have access to it. Uh, we made it such a high-priced commodity that um, folks just can't get healthy and we all know that food is medicine and we decided to keep going with this mission 
uh, once the pandemic was over, once uh, World Central Kitchen uh, closed their doors, uh, we decided to find different contracts and work with different uh, organizations to keep the mission of li alive of not just feeding the community because we did notice that the community was not eating as healthy as, as they should. And we noticed that it's just more than uh, just presenting healthy food. It's also educating folks as well um, that the food that we eat is very important, uh, not because it heals us, it's medicine for us, but in conjunction with healthy habits and sleeping well and maintaining activity, food is a powerful medicine. And um, our food that's that we are culturally used to, um, no matter what culture you are, uh, that food, um, your body and your, your, you grew up accustomed eating to that through, through ages. Like, um, like he was mentioning, um, his, his family and his generations were accustomed to surviving, eating and thriving in the East Bay based on what's there. And, um, your body learns that and, once we learn to decolonize our diets, and what I mean by that is to, yes, in the course of progress, we learn to manipulate our foods and to the detriment of our bodies. And if we learn to kind of step back and try to eat how we would normally eat um, prior to, you know, the, the progressive age of, you know, canning foods and all the preservatives and highly processed foods and uh, fructose corn syrups and using uh, different types of oils that used to be used to lubricate machines. Um, and so we kind of noticed that there's this, there's this space that we need to not just feed our, our community, we need to educate them. So we do classes and we also help uh, young students who want to join into the uh, force and the workforce. We give them an opportunity to come and learn with us. To, to learn not just how to eat, but how to work and how to make a living. Um, because a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, folks in East Oakland, we tend to f feel like we're left behind, like we are forgotten. And um, we do this work uh, out of love as well. Um, but we do it because we've noticed that as entrepreneurs, we have a bigger chance of making change by who we choose to work with, who we choose to partnership who we choose to partner with, and who we choose to, to feed. And for us, it's very important to teach people um, the importance of eating healthy and the importance of, of trying to tr make a change for your community because it's all about community at the end of the day. Um, food has, has left the uh, stage of what it used to be, an act of um, celebration, an act of, um, of sustenance, of, an act of love, and it has now become an act of, um, of some type of you know, duty that you have to do just to keep alive. We have become so disconnected of where our food comes from, how, how, what it takes for it to come to, to where it is. We've, we've become so accustomed to manipulating our food that we forgot um, the importance of food and how to eat food healthily and, and how to thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one more thing I wanted to add. During the pandemic, when we say we were feeding our community, we were very um, mindful of who the community communities were. We were feeding single parents, you know, single single mothers, um, at-risk youth. We were feeding our senior citizens. We were feeding the unhoused and unsheltered. So we wanted to make. Um, an impact at that micro level, because if you look at the large 
scale of the issues, right? Even within Oakland, if you see all of Oakland, it can be so overwhelming. But we knew that if we could just like set a stake in East Oakland, where we're from, where we walk the streets and create the the change from within this area and spread out, the goal was to create that domino effect within our own community. And when we created these meals, the cultural relevance was so important because even if someone is hungry, you can hand someone just boiled carrots and some white steamed rice and a piece of meat. And even if they're hungry, they might not eat it. And rightfully so, right? We really understood that people love to eat. It's like a little hug for them if it's familiar, if it's something that they're used to, if it's something that reminds them of something their grandma used to make. And for us, keeping that relevancy of the meals that we were creating and making them dignified was really our priority. So I, I just have one point, and we've talked a lot about feeding people, which obviously you have done a lot of that. But what about where you're from? What what about the the, the region in Mexico? Do, oh, yeah. do you focus on? You've talked generalities, but what about the the Mexican cuisine that you grew up with? Is that primarily what you what you serve? Pro- yes, yes. We tend to serve a lot of guisados. Um, and so I take a lot of what I learned from my family, my, mostly my, my aunties, my mother, my, grand, my grandmother. Um, and we take these recipes and we, enter, we, we mix it with the California cuisine, uh, farm to table, fresh, organic uh, food. And we like to integrate a lot more vegetables to our guisados. And I think for us, um, especially when we serve the Latino community, it's... it's it's very different to present dishes that we're not totally too accustomed to seeing. Right. Uh, like we see a lot of tacos and burritos, but um, we know that there's a lot more food out there that creates a lot more healthier sustenance. And for us, it's very important to bring these dishes out and present them in a much more healthier way and much more lighter way because um, unfortunately, our cuisines, we get kind of demonized as unhealthy or it's well, not Not so originally, though. I mean, your original cuisine... Yeah, wasn't yeah. like that at all. We're so. UNESCO World Heritage Cuisine now. Yeah, so. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and um, yeah, it's very important for us. To, a lot of the a, a lot of the ingredients that are in Mexico thrive a lot here as well, which are chiles, squash, right. tomatoes, cilantro, onions, garlic, and and it all thrives here. And so we're so close, and the history is so so linked as well, because um, there were a lot of Mexico Californios here as well. And um, we haven't, we haven't been here as long, but um, food, a lot of the food is culture and, and a lot of the food is history. Um, you can tell our history through our food. Um, the Mexican cuisine, uh, especially from, from Michoacan, has a lot of influence from Spain and from Arabic countries as well. And um, heavily influenced because obviously we were colonized by the Spanish. And when the Spanish came and colonized Mexico, they had just gotten off a 700-year rule from the Moors. And so you can see there's a lot of heavy Arab influence, especially amongst the soldiers who were here. Okay. Jeff. Hi. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I want to thank everyone for coming. Um, it's really exciting to be here um, and talk a little bit about... Um, uh, some of my background in food. Um, 
uh, Burdell is named after my grandmother. Um, and it's really about uh, honoring not only grandmothers, but just like uh, the people that came before us and the foods that they ate. Um, um, and trying to do it in a just a little bit more modern way. Um, um, and modern in a sense of like looking back. Um, I think uh, black food is kind of like stigmatized and put into a box uh, these days. Like, um, you know, if you ask people like what are the foods that you associate with soul food, it's like fried and buttered and overly sweet. And, um, you know, those are celebratory foods and, and celebra celebratory foods in my family um, as well. Um, but, you know, you get go to a Tuesday night dinner at my grandmother's house, like it's 80% vegetables and very uh, healthy. And um, her, you know, her friend grew the, grew the yams and they were just cooked simply. Um, so just kind of want to give a little bit of highlight to that, that like the food is really at its core uh, about farming, about vegetables, about um, taking care of yourself. Um, and um, and just having a connection to uh, our past. Um, so, uh, you know, along with like getting put in the boxes, like the food as being largely unhealthy, I think people uh, only associate black food with like Southern food. Um, and, you know, what I'm doing is not uh, a Southern restaurant. Um, obviously, most black people have some sort of connection to the South. But uh, for generations, my family were, was in the Philadelphia or New Jersey region. Um, I was born in Philadelphia. Um, and there's all these cities during the Great Migration that black people moved to from the South um, when they was no longer safe. So just really want to tell that story. And now that I call um, Oakland home, um, you know, it's a great place to tell that story as well. Um, so, you know, just really want to focus on, you know, the adaptation that you make when you move to a major metro area. Um, and a lot of things are lost along the way. Um, you know, when you're, uh, you know, generationally put into like housing projects, being removed from um, healthy foods, being removed from the idea that your food has like uh, immense history and value and, um, and health to it. Um, uh, for generations, it's, it's really hard to reconnect to that. So um, that's one of the huge, uh, you know, just um, just kind of points for the restaurant as well. Um, but also um, just bringing it into uh, a sense of um, uh, elegance and, and, and dignity as well um, and having the kind of approach and uh, professionalism of the restaurants that I came up working in. Um, you know, my background's in fine dining, and I really see, like, a big gap in California cuisine of they're all kind of funnel into this European uh, model. Um, it's the vaguely Italian with, the, with produce or vaguely French, and I, I worked in a lot of those restaurants. Um, I, you know, obviously the food has um, its own importance, um, but, you know, I think that, you know, soul food has its roots in like the original American food. Um, so I think if we're going to tell that story as uh, Californians that, you know, pointing towards American food um, uh, just really speaks to me. Um, and I think it speaks to a lot of people. Um, um, 
and just like the general sense of like shared uh, nostalgia. Um, everyone has a memory of um, uh, going to their grandparents, their elders' house, or um, uh, something along that line, and just like that warmth of like having a food that um, your grandmother's cooking, but their grandparent cooked for them, and you pass down that knowledge um, and continue carrying on those traditions, um, but you know adapt them to uh, what you can get around you. So. You know, maybe you don't have a patch of mustard greens in the back of your house, but we have, you know, kale. Um, I, I'm able to source really awesome broccoli leaves from Dirty Girl Farms. Um, and just, like, adapting with, like, these awesome produce um, and growers and producers around us. Um, here in California, we're so blessed to have really awesome uh, um, producers, growers, farmers, ranchers around us. So being able to tell that story through that lens of, the access to the, those awesome things that are around us. So, yeah. so um, I have some questions that um, I had asked each of our presenters to what questions do you want to be asked? And, and so I'm going to be asking some of those questions and then we're going to be opening it up for you to ask questions as well. And then I don't know about all of you, but I will be visiting all of their restaurants. Um, that, that's for sure. And, and Jeff's in um, End of Spring, his yep. new restaurant. So, so the significance and history of soul food. Um, just curious, as you were talking about your grandparents and living in Philadelphia, how far back can you trace your, your roots? Um... About three generations. Uh, my um, grandmother, Burdell's mother, um, walked uh, from South Carolina to New Jersey um, with a newborn child um, that died along the way. Um, and so, but a lot of that history before that was lost, okay. um, just due to the nature of like having to uh, walk over sure. a thousand miles, uh, you know, as a as a 19 year old. Um, so, uh, and then on the other side, it's, it's in some ways kind of the same as well. Um, so it doesn't go that far back, um, directly, but the way that we can really trace back is through the food, you know, how uh, have you done the research on tracing way back to the times that we all don't really want to think about? And that is slave time and, and what any food that's just, Four generations ago, not even four generations ago. Wow. So, um, and you know, my grandparents on the other side, my grandfather was a sharecropper, which mm. is an extension of that yeah. tradition. So, uh, it's definitely not that long ago. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um, I was curious about, um, Vincent and, and Lewis about Cafe Alone. It's, it's located on the Berkeley campus. And you had talked about the Berkeley, um, Berkeley trying to say that your um, people were extinct. Mm. So a little cognitive dissonance going on in my head with that one. So can you speak a little of, about that? So in our community, um, we have, uh, our elders have a very strong memory about um, the Hearst family and also Alfred Krober. It was the anthropologist in 1925 who visited our family over on the old Sonol Rancheria. 
And um, he was the one who wrote that the Ohlone's for all practical purposes are extinct, even though he visited our people and he knew that that wasn't the case. Mm. Um, they, they did that as an act of trying to seize land from our people and to lead to the loss of the federal recognition of the Verona Band of Alameda County. At that same time, um, the university went through and literally removed thousands of our ancestors from, from, their, from their cemeteries, and um, they still haven't been returned back. And, and so when we talk to our elders, um, nobody has a deeper relationship with the university than our community. That's just the truth. I mean, the university sits on our land, and also there's a very living memory of what's happened in the history there's memories that our family has of Alfred Krober coming around, as well as, um, as well as, as memories of Phoebe Hurst, who the museum, that's uh, the Anthropology Museum, we are in the courtyard right in front of that museum. Our elders, though, they remember Phoebe Hurst. They call her Auntie Phoebe. She was um, somebody who, contrary to what many people might assume outside of our community, um, actually had a very positive relationship with the, um, the elders, the, our great-grandparents' generation. And during a time of extreme racism, she, was, um, she even employed a lot, of, uh, a lot of our family during that time. Um, and so there was a positive relationship with her, but not so much her son. It was the opposite with her son. Mm -hmm. And after she passed away, then there was um, a lot of hardship that came um, with her son, um, William Randolph Hearst. So um, to think about what's happened in an honest way that's specific to our culture, our identity, and to know that that university sits in our homeland, to be able to have a space that's there, we can tell these truths in an honest way over beautiful Ohlone culture, beautiful Ohlone cuisine, telling it with our own voices. In a place of higher education, as UC Berkeley is, we have every right to be in that space, to be able to, to, to tell these truths so that those things are never forgotten about. Also, to be able to teach about how the culture continued on so that people know, despite that egregious um, lie that Alfred Krober said about our people being extinct, that that was never true, that the family kept continuing on. Of course, it caused hardship with the loss of the federal recognition because that land that our great-grandparents were born on was, was, was taken from our people. But we never left the East Bay, and the family kept continuing on, kept continuing the culture on, directly where we've always been right there. That's an act of strength and love and, again, triumph right there. And we want people to know that so that we can be able to teach them that this happened in the past, but that we survived that, that we're in our home today, that's where we'll always be. When people know those things, they can't unknow them. Right. And so being in that space right there is an act to our strength right there in that space, an act to the love that our people have for our land and our culture. It certainly is. Yeah. So en Enrique, uh, going back to um, the food of your ancestors, yes. and um, without how... Um, what do you think, for the people that you serve, what do you think the importance is to your community of the culturally relevant food that you serve? I think the uh, most important uh, thing about um, serving our community culturally relevant food, obviously, is that it's food that they understand 
and that they can eat without, you know, um, like when, what we really notice is that during these programs with like World Central Kitchen, uh, we would notice sometimes uh, other companies would deliver food and it would be uh, really almost uh, blind and ignorant to who they were serving. And we would notice a lot of times folks wouldn't eat it because uh, either they don't know, understand it, or they just quite frankly didn't like it. And um, we figured that that's very important for folks to receive food that they know and understand so they can actually consume it and actually like to eat it. And um, a lot of times when food seems too foreign, we're a little too... Uh, too scared to go in and eat, you know, it's, um, it's just, a, it's a true fact, and, um, a lot of times when people are receiving free food, if we're not serving the community, it almost feels like an after, more of an afterthought, and more of something that's kind of hastily done, and, and not really done as an act of love, and an act of feeding, it's more, more of a duty, um, and so what, what we started to do was, uh, we noticed exactly, not just the communities that we were delivering to, but we would always talk with the different folks and see what the feedback was. And so if it was an older, uh, if for example, we were delivering to the senior citizen, they would say, hey, you know what? They they couldn't really chew all this that very well. And so, um, or um, if you're making it too spicy, you gotta tone down on it. So we um, we definitely, um, we we change our recipes a little bit and move and we cook based on wh on who we serve. And it's very important to serve people culturally relevant meals because it's something that they are very used used to, something that they will um, readily eat. And not only that, it's um, it's almost a sign of appreciation. And when somebody eats, when when you're having a really bad time or you're down and out on your luck, and you eat something that you're comfortable knowing and that you've eaten your whole life, or something that just takes you back to whatever times you just break onto a little happy dance, <laughs> and you kind of forget the moment that you're in and so you just get filled with like love and and sustenance and it just kind of makes you forget your hardships for a moment and i feel like that's one of the biggest important things for us that's wonderful so jeff these um these tuesday night dinners with your grandma what was one of your favorite dishes and will you be serving it at your restaurant at burdell's when you open um i mean there's just so many um i think the thing that's really uh not known about uh, soul food is that there's so many um, dishes and there's so many recipes. So there wasn't like one thing in particular. Um, there was just so many things depending on what was in season that time of year. Um, and just so many things uh, um, like uh, smothered cabbage, like cabbage cooked with ham hock, but it's just like seasoned a little bit with the ham hock, but it's just really about really awesome in season cabbage um, a little bit of garlic and ginger and um, onion, um, just like cooked for hours. Um, and you just get all the nutrition of the cabbage because it's all cooked in one pot. Um, and there's just like one little bit of smoky um, element in there, but it's just like, it's just in there to season it. Um, just stuff like that. It's just like very simple um, um, in a way, but it has so many different layers of sweetness from the cabbage. Um, that little bit of ginger um, uh, kind of ties back to um, Africa a bit. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the smoked pork product, just like seasoning. Um, um, but it's still just like a largely vegetable dish. So that's, a, that's an example of, of something. And we'd have like that with rice. Um, it's like really, really simple, really comforting, and um, really centered around vegetables um, and, and good for you. So. 
I, I like um, the fact that, you know, we were talking about cultural relevance. That's the whole point of this program. And how Enrique was just saying just the smell of it and, you know, the familiar food that your grandmother made or your, you know, and there's something about that that just is um, comforting and, and makes you, you feel good, even momentarily. So I, I think, um, and, and then, and we're going to, I'm, Promising to stop asking questions and let you guys ask some questions, but but just also the education part. You've all talked about education, edu educating others, and that it is to when they're at Cafe Alone's or Cucina Cucina del Corazon or Verdell's soon, um, you know, there's the, cult, the, you know, the, the culture component. We're there to learn. We're, you know, the, what is the organization, the peace plate? You know, if we all had dinner together, then there wouldn't be war, you know, right? If you break bread with people or whatever you're breaking with people. So I think it's a real important aspect of, of what you're all doing, getting it out to your own people, culturally relevant food to the, your culture, but bringing us all into it so we can all learn um, your, the history and why you're doing what you do. So who has questions? We have two microphones. Bill Grant has one over there. Okay, I'll start here and then Bill, you be next. I had a question for uh, Vincent. You mentioned that, you're, that uh, you source all your material like locally and it's based on foods from the Bay Area. How do you overcome the obstacle of the fact that the Bay Area has been industrialized and so a lot of those, um, whether it's the wetlands or the waters or the general area, that those food sources don't really exist uh, in, in, a, uh, in as abundance now? So just a few generations back, um, even going into the 1950s, my grandfather tells stories about fishing over in Alameda Creek, about the elders telling about gathering foods in abundance, gathering acorn for, for multiple years and storing them in granaries, which is our staple. And those foods were always tended to, so they were always replenishing themselves. Um, now, when the controlled burns were banned, there was an impact on how those foods could be able to to be able to, to be reinvigorated because those uh, California's meant to be tended to. The central California, this part of California, fire is a way of producing food and clearing out that overgrowth, as I mentioned earlier. Now, without that fire, without being able to have, you know, human hands directly tending to the, the spaces, as well as, as constant um, short-term development that happens, gentrification that happens, of course, that's going to have an impact on how we can gather traditional foods. But the Bay Area, it's an incredible place for so many reasons. But one thing I think about a lot is just how resilient that the land is. And if you're in the flatlands, of course, there's going to be urbanity all around. You go up into the hills and those traditional foods are still growing up there in large amounts. But we don't encourage the public to go out there and gather because they are still scarce and they all still need to be respected in the way of uh, letting them be able to do their own thing and to keep being able to replenish themselves. So while we'll source, for an example, at Cafe Aloni, we'll source teas that we gather locally or we'll source foods that uh, for our community and family meals that we gather directly in 
super culturally specific areas that our grandparents, great-grandparents, aunties, that they all gather in. We also want to be mindful that the land needs to have space to be able to, to restore itself. And what that means is, for an example, our family, we all have community uh, um, gardens in our backyards where we grow our redwood sorrel, our watercresses, where we grow our chia. That's their California chia growing in tarweed and red maid. We work with, um, with people that are just further east in uh, the Sierra foothills who are able to uh, gather enough acorn where they, we can source it to be able to have acorn for larger mills that we might not be able to source directly um, for uh, larger mills that are um, that because the acorn isn't some years coming in in the amounts that it did just a short time ago. Being able to work with uh, upwind... Um, Hog Island over on Tamales Bay to source our Olympia oysters, for an example, or making sure that our chanterelles are coming from just a little bit north in areas where there's more abundance, where they can be sourced in a, res in a responsible way, where those uh, mushrooms are able to keep regenerating themselves in our homeland. Making sure that this food, it's paired with uh, stewardship and conservation in mind, never taking from an area where there's scarcity that's there making sure that eventually that it will be able to be as full as it was a short time ago. And it's possible. And I'd like to share just um, uh, something that, that I think a lot about, which is when I was a child, uh, along the Bayshore, along uh, Hayward, San Lorenzo, San Leandro uh, Bayshore, where my family has always lived, like literally where we've always been. When I was a child, the, there was a lot of um, industrial contamination that's right there from, from, um, from a lot of the factories. And there were parts that my mom and my dad, they couldn't take me to because it was physically unsafe because of the, of the contamination that was there from the runoff that was there. When I was a teenager in the early 2000s, uh, there started to become a, a restoration that took hold of the pickleweed marshes, where the pickleweed marshes they um, began to be respected by the public in the way that they ought to be respected. And within a short time, like I'm talking like within my lifetime, I've seen this happen. The rivulets of the pickleweed marshes came back. The, the water became cleaner. Herons and egrets and pelicans came back to the area. You start to see like, um, I saw a stingray the other day out there when I was, uh, when I was going out there on the, on the shoreline. You see all of this life that gets restored and to see that happen, and I'm not that old, I mean, I'm 36, you know, but to see that happen in my lifetime is something that gives me a lot of hope for what's possible. You know, we talk a lot about, about how things are with the environment. There's, there's all this harm that happens, and of course that there is when it's done with short-term growth and it's done without thinking about interconnections and it's done without respect for the land as often the public doesn't have respect for but when we can be able to see a space be restored, it shows what's possible and how that can be able to propel other restorations to take hold. So we're in a place where we think about healing and we think about how places can be able to be restored back to how they ought to be treated. And right now we're seeing this happen. And um, I'm, in our lifetime, you know, we're gonna work to be able to see more of that happen so that our traditional foods in our land can be gathered uh, again with that, with that abundance as they ought to be, but still acknowledging that there's still abundance all around us in our, in our beautiful homeland.
I had a question for Jeff. Jeff, as you're putting together your menu and thinking yep. about how to educate people of what soul food really is and the diver- the diversity of soul food, do you feel pressure from people to kind of answer to put like the kind of the tropes of the the fried chicken and the cornbread and I mean how do you have you experienced that and how are you moving forward with it in your menu development? That's a really good question. Uh, and yes, <laughs> uh, I think like, uh, um, you know, go to the farmer's market uh, for um, everything that's like featured on the menu and end up having conversations with people and people like two things happen. Either um, they, they ask, you know, what kind of food Burdell is and two things happen. Either uh, they start rattling off every Southern dish that they've heard of <laughs> or they, their eyes kind of glaze over and they lose interest. Um, so um, there's rarely any like openness to like understanding uh, what the story is that's being told, um, which uh, can be, uh, uh, can be uh, either discouraging or like uh, just lets me know that like the story really needs to be told and uh, be told in a way that's, um, um, that I feel really comfortable telling it. Um, and you know, so I really want to be able to, to serve stuff that's like really seasonal, really driven by what's available at the markets. Um, and just have the same approach that my grandmother would have, um, in her kitchen, um, uh, when preparing them, um, but not get so caught up in, uh, dishes that people necessarily know or that they, uh, is the most baseline association with the food. Um, I've like very recently like wrestled with the idea of like never serving fried chicken. Um, uh, and we may not, uh, um, um, just like, you know, it's, it's really frustrating to get put in a box and people just like, uh, it's one of the only cuisines where people just like, they hear it and they, automatically think that they know uh, what the food is. And um, I think as Americans, we don't really understand the regionality of our food and how it varies state to state, um, especially uh, within different communities, um, uh, especially communities that are not our own. And so it's, uh, it's really discouraging when people like uh, think soul food is Southern food, uh, first of all, and then think that they know what that is. Um, and, you know, just like want to encourage that openness and, and just the idea that like the food is not stagnant, um, it's continuing to evolve. Um, there isn't just uh, the looking back and recreating. We should be like using these same tenets and ethos and cooking styles to like cook new things and um, infuse ingredients from uh, the Bay Area, which we have so many of um, uh, into the food. So um, recently there's a, um, uh, a fermentation producer um, called Sure Cultures, um, and we collaborated on making a uh, boiled peanut miso. So it's just like in like boiled peanuts that I grew up uh, eating and then fusing with miso, which is like such a, a ingredient that I've used uh, throughout uh, my career, like um, just working in more California uh, food. It's just like, it just makes so much sense to me. Um, so just being able to uh, not have a box or borders on like what uh, soul food means and what uh, black food ways means, especially as a Californian 
uh, especially as someone in the Bay Area that um, is just like open-minded about cooking techniques and how they can impact the food. Well, I'm pretty sure we all want to have some of this uh, boiled peanut miso. Did you have a question? Yes, Yes. I did. Uh, So I wanted to thank all the panelists. Um, I have a disclosure, a noticing, and then a question. The disclosure is that uh, I am a lapsed member of the Commonwealth Club. I became a member because I, I saw that this panel was happening. Wow. And so I'm so grateful that, that I'm seeing all of you. The noticing that I have is that, you know, I, I'm looking forward to one day when, when I see black, indigenous people of color tell their stories without having to justify through all the trials and travails why they want to do the work why they want to actually feed people. I'm looking forward to that day. But the question I have for you is actually related to Oakland, which is uh, I'm a product of that town. I've seen so many fantastic restaurants go through Oakland and then also leave Oakland. And so I'm actually wondering, for those who are viewing and those who are here, what, what do you need to sustain your businesses so that we can see, we can we can continue to see more businesses open in Oakland, like yours. Yeah, I'm happy to answer that. I am the biggest advocate of small business, especially in Oakland. I really, truly believe that if people want to support the city that they inhabit, you just start where you're at, like. Don't drive 15 minutes to a place like if you can walk down to the closest restaurant, if you can shop at the closest store to you and going at that hyper level, you know, as a consumer spending your money where you live and within your own community, that is the biggest gift you can give small business owners and small food business owners as well. And for us, that's really what we believe in. It's like hyper local, keep the money within your own economy. And almost thinking back of the old days, right? There was like a community store, a grocery place, a this one place, a pillar of the community that people would support. And, you know, we believe that if one community decides to really support that small business or that restaurant there. Um, it could be very thri- It could be a thriving um, place for people. So just as a consumer, just shop local, spend your money in your own community, and that alone will create a big difference and will allow us to stay um, in our in our towns and to make a difference there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, wow. This is definitely excited to be here. And I, I love that question. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, so, you know, in right along with that, one of the, the things that I appreciate is cultural relevant food. But one of the things that I honor is the stories that are attached to that food. Right. So my question is, what plans are you making to not only to maintain those stories, but tell the legacy of all of those who have came before you? How is that recorded in history? Well, well I can, I can kind of answer that really as brief as I can. Each answer, you've each got like 10 seconds to. All right, no problem. Well, <laughs> no I, think that, I think that food and history are, are very closely tied together. As I mentioned, you know, uh, in Mexico, we have uh, our cuisine has been fused with Spanish, with Moors, especially with, with our indigenous uh, cuisine. And as we uh, progress in life, 
we add certain ingredients to our cuisine that shows our history as we move along. Like, for example, the addition of Coca-Cola to our carnitas and stuff. So that's how our history gets recorded in our cuisine. But I'll pass it off. Oh, I feel comfortable. I think I already answered that. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, What do you think? Did you get the answer you were looking for? I mean, well, first of all, I think we a big round of applause for all of our amazing speakers. <laughs> Yeah, and, and back to uh, keeping the, the businesses afloat, I think we're all going to be going to all of your restaurants, right? <laughs> and getting the word out. We look forward to seeing you all in um, our next event. And again, the next one is Dr. Linda Shu, and, um, and talking about the culinary properties of herbs and how we can bring those into our lives. So this concludes the tonight's program and the Commonwealth Club's 120th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you for being here. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.